The Talking Stigma podcast featured Gareth Thomas and me, Craig Doyle, talking to other well-known guests about stigma and how we can make stigma a thing of the past through knowledge and education. Listen to Gareth talking about his HIV-positive diagnosis, how people have treated him, how he has felt since he announced his status back in September 2019, and how through scientific advances, being on effective treatment means the levels of HIV are so low in his system that the virus cannot be passed on through sexual contact. The intimate discussions draw on personal insights of Gareth and other special guests, comparing and contrasting their experiences of stigma. Hello all, and you're very welcome to the Tackle HIV with Gareth Thomas and the Talking Stigma podcast series. Great to have you with us. I'm Craig Doyle, and throughout the series, I'm talking to Gareth and some other just well-known people, extraordinary people, people with inspirational and brilliant stories to tell. And I guess what we focus on is dealing with stigma and people's resilience and their ability to fight stigma and fight causes and be brave and swim against the tide when they have to. And uh, we'll continue that today with another extraordinary guest. Um, what's it like to experience stigma? What's What's it like to be discriminated against? What's it like to be treated differently? Well, that is uh, one of the well many uh, questions and themes we discuss in this podcast. And as I said, we'll be continuing that today. So joining Gareth and I today, I'm delighted to say we have writer, activist and television presenter and just all around really lovely person. And I only know this from listening to her many podcasts and interviews. She's a great broadcaster, a really interesting person and her name is Katie Piper. So Katie, how are you doing? You're well. Oh, I'm under pressure to be really nice now. <laughs> hey, you better be good. <laughs> I was going to be a total bitch. <laughs> yeah, but you can be. But that's okay. That's okay. You have to do that as well. That's that's needed. Um, I'm going to say lots of other glowing things about you. Would you like me to do that? Yeah, that would feel good. Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, Katie, um, obviously you campaign for awareness about Burns victims and you've made your TV documentaries telling your own story and TV series as well and, and weekly columns on that subject as well, which is brilliant because you've been so honest in that and so rewarding for people who've watched and read them and listened to them. Uh, you founded the Katie Piper Foundation to help victims of burns and other disfigurement injuries. Uh, you also have a huge podcast series on extraordinary people. I mean, I'm here. I know you want to do, but like, you want some average tales about an average life. I'm your guy. I am your guy. Um, and uh, Alfie, you're doing it quite soon. He goes on. You know, take the afternoon off. You'll go on. Um, Katie, it's really good to have you with us. Uh, before we chat to you, Alfie, how are you? Yeah, I'm 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 very good actually. Um the other side of lockdown, um the campaign has uh, um has really gained momentum, the knowledge of the campaign. We've done a we've done a new survey um to kind of try and understand how far people have come um in their knowledge of 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 HIV and as much as it was inspiring and um I felt worthwhile in what we've been doing we realized that even though people are better informed around hiv or feel that they're better informed around hiv there's still a stigma there's still a misunderstanding around it because if i read some of the some of the stats around it was that fewer than one in five people know that someone living with hiv who is on effective treatment cannot pass hiv on to their sexual partners um and another i felt quite astonishing statistic was that almost half of the people we asked would not consider taking a taking a HIV test because they assumed 
that they wouldn't be at risk. Now, when I say the assumption of being at risk is because they felt that they weren't in a category that would be um, be affected by HIV. Therefore, as we assume, HIV is only something that affects um, gay men or black African men, African women. And, and, and we know and I know that that is not, not the case. So I feel that, you know, there's still a lot of emphasis and a lot of barriers need to be broken down on the knowledge and the understanding so people can have knowledgeable conversations around this subject. Oh, it is amazing. It's only the 40th anniversary of the first case of HIV coming up in June. So when you think about this battle uh, and the battle about informing and getting rid of the misinformation, it's still quite early days, isn't it, Katie? You know, it takes a long, long time to change opinion and to get rid of stigma, doesn't it, if you ever can? Yeah, absolutely. It's so interesting. Um, uh, my, a recent guest on my podcast was a woman called Sue and she had divorced and started dating. She's in her 50s and she had contracted HIV. And like many women in their 50s, wasn't attending sexual health clinics, wasn't having any routine testing with the GP. So it was only that her previous partner had then come to her and, and said, I found this out about my status. And she's gone on to do loads of awareness with the, the Terence Higgins Trust. And when I put that story on my Instagram, I was shocked by the replies of the the lack of information and ignorance that so many of my followers, who I class as quite educated, informed people, had around what that status really means, what life is like for Sue. Um, and it, it was quite disappointing. Like, you know, the reaction in terms of volume was high, but the ignorance and the stigma was really disappointing from what I thought was quite a great bunch of people that followed me. Yeah, I think you, you people get to an age in life where they almost feel that they're indestructible that nothing mm -hmm. can affect them. So potentially you get to a middle age where you feel, okay, you've had children, you've maybe, you're married, maybe divorced, and you feel that you've been through everything that life has had to throw at you, and now you can enjoy it. And um, one thing that I think is really interesting is there's the fact that over half of the people living with HIV in the UK are heterosexual. Mm -hmm. Around a third are women and over half are white. So that knowledge in itself should be something to be broadcast so people realise that, you know, if they are having sexual partners or unprotected uh, sex, then they are at risk. It's not just something that affects a certain category of of people, but like I said, I just feel people get to an age where they don't feel like it can affect them. Like it's it's, it's not in their realm of conversation. Um, it's not in their realm of fear. So they feel that they don't have to have this understanding around the subject. I think also for me, the frustrating thing is that not just of HIV, but also facial disfigurement and many other things, the main killer and the main block to you living a full life is that stigma. And actually, if that wasn't there, many people would reach their full potential and wouldn't have the mental health problems that then go along with whatever that label is that society have given them. Yeah. Do you think there's a certain kind of person that lends themselves to stigmatizing people, no matter what it is, whether it's facial disfigurement, whether it's homophobia, whether it's worried about HIV, whether it's race. Do, do you think there's just a certain person that just absorbs that stuff? 
Mm, it's fearful people. Um, it, it always comes from lack of understanding, lack of education, and it's a reflection of your innermost thoughts and fears. You know, there's a brilliant saying of hurt people hurt people. And whenever you get this kind of hate or whatever it is, whether it's trolling, whether it's in person, it comes from a really painful place from that person that's dishing it out. And I think that's how you can practice empathy for people that direct that kind of spew that awful stuff towards you. Yeah. One of my other favorite sayings on that actually is never drink someone else's poison. Yeah, and it's I, I so guess true. for both of you, that's a hard thing to do because your instinct is to fight back. But sometimes you just have to let the haters hate. I mm. guess. How difficult yeah. is that for both of you? Well, I, for me, what happened to me happened when I was 24 when I was burnt. And, you know, that is at an age where status, appearance, attractiveness is at such high stakes. Your, your sex life's completely different at that age. You know, people are having boyfriends, getting engaged. And my life was totally different. You know, I was in hospital. I lost my eyesight. I was learning to swallow, having speech therapy. So I was like off the grid to in terms of a 24-year-old. So negative reactions were really hard and they were really soul destroying. But as I've got older now into my sort of mid to late thirties, I do think I'm more robust and able to deal with it and it, it doesn't affect me, but that's probably because I'm like 13 years of living like this and it's become my normal. And I don't think that would be the same for other people who are more recently injured. Mm, yeah. And I find, I find for me, as much as it, I think it's impossible for anyone to sit you and kind of say, you know, if there's a negative reaction towards me, do you know what? I just get on with life. I'm fine with it because a negative, a negative reaction or a form of discrimination, no matter how obvious or unobvious that comes, it's very difficult to pretend that it never happened. And it's very, very difficult to say, just move on from it. Um, but what I find it gives me, it gives me real motivation. It gives me an understanding that, you know, um, the society we live in or the people I surround myself with or the people that choose to be around me are people that understand that there's more about me than my HIV status. There's more about me than my sexuality. Um, and I think sometimes I could get carried away in thinking, Do you know, what? my life is great. I've created a great life. I got a lovely husband. I got a lovely house. I got a lovely family. I got a lovely group of friends. Like, what is there for me to do? In this world but when you have that negative reaction it's it's that um understanding that it is out there and other people aren't as lucky as i have been to create this really safe safe environment for me and i feel it'd be really selfish for me just to say Do you know what my life is great if you're facing discrimination just get over it because that's too much of a selfish thing for me to say. So I think it's it motivates me to want to do things like this. I'm sure this motivates things when when Katie faces it motivates you to do things so other people don't then get discriminated discriminated against. And you have this kind of strength, this power by this environment you've created to be able to stand up for people who maybe can't stand up for themselves, who don't have that inner strength. 
I'm so glad you said that because it just reminded me of something that um, sometimes in my life, I forget that I look different. I forget what happens to me because I'm around the right people where it isn't a thing for them. And then it's only when you face stigma, you're reminded that there's something different. So I remember a couple of years ago, I went into like a news agent, I think just to grab like some chewing gum or something. And I was with a girl that worked for me and I ran in really quickly and the guy went to me, oh my God, what's happened to your face? And I was like, why am I bleeding? Like assuming something must have happened to my face. And then I realized, and I was like, oh no. Um, and cause it was so quick, you know, I should have not disclosed. I should have walked away, but I went, oh, uh, sorry, um, someone burnt me. And, and then it was like humiliating because the girl who was with me actually worked for me. It was like a really embarrassing dynamic. Mm. And I just left the chewing gum and like walked out the shop feeling ashamed. But it just reminded me of like, I'm not different and people don't treat me differently until I bump into someone like that who out of their own like voyeuristic curiosity wants me to disclose something that's not relevant. Yeah. yeah. How do you stop yourself just on a human level, not saying to him, I got burnt. What happened to your face, you ugly bastard? <laughs> like how, <laughs> how do you stop yourself? I really admire that. Sometimes it depends how you're feeling. Sometimes you could humor somebody and be like, nothing. Why? What can you see? What like, you know, but it's hard. And I always think it's difficult because sometimes it does come from a place of like kindness and misinformation. And, you know, there's, there's never this, I don't know about you, Gareth, but there's never one size fits all for everything. And the situation is never the same on a day to day basis. Yeah. And, and also what, what I found and what I've accepted as well, right, is that, you know, I've put myself out there, you know, I put myself out there with the knowledge that people are going to um, connect me with my HIV status. They're going to connect me with my sexuality. So I understand that some people, and in a way I take it as a compliment sometimes as well, is some people look at me and the first thing they think is that, you know, there's a person who's living with HIV. But then it's like, right, okay, and hopefully there's a person who's living with HIV who banished so many myths that I thought people live with living with HIV could or couldn't do. Um, so in a, in, in, in a way, I think, you know, when people like myself, when people like Katie put ourselves out there to create awareness, to create understanding, sometimes it's, some, sometimes it's, kind, of a, it's, it's kind of a good thing that people see. It shows that what we're doing, actually, as much as we're passionate about it, what we're doing is reaching the places that usually wouldn't be confronted. You know, when Katie tells our story, it's probably because as much as you want to say to the person, you know, that, like, have some empathy, have some respect. Hopefully, from that one occasion, he's then learned from Katie, like maybe I, maybe I, I spoke before I thought, and next time this happens, maybe I shouldn't assume, or maybe I shouldn't ask, or if I do ask, then maybe I should ask in a more empathetic way. Mm. It's interesting, isn't it, Katie? Because Gareth is armed with facts, okay? Research has been done. He can say to someone, I can tell you that someone with HIV can live a very happy life and I can have a very active se sex life and it can have a long, long life. You don't have those facts. Yours is based on this weird human instinct to point out a difference in someone else. Yeah. So your response yeah. is different, isn't it? Yeah, and it's quite complex because there's the whole like backstory of what happened to me I was raped, I was attacked, you know, it was male violence to, to a female. So there's a whole kind of stigma around that, around blame. 
um, around all sorts of things and about speaking out. Um, disfigurement, there's a whole thing about how able you are and what you should no longer want or desire. And that actually, you know, you should get put back together and just be happy with being alive. And that actually someone with a facial burn wouldn't be the CEO, wouldn't be into fashion, wouldn't want a sex life, wouldn't get married. <coughs> I'm sorry, I've got a bit of a cough. Um, and just little things, you know, I'm married. I've got, I've got two kids and a husband. The way people congratulate my husband for marrying me when I'm stood with him, like only on Monday we went shopping and someone came up to my husband and told him what a great guy he was for marrying me and shook his hand. And it's comes from a place of what they think is kindness and a good place. And it's really humiliating. Um, and it's just, it's the whole thing of how we see disabled people. Like we either see them as kind of inspiration porn for doing very normal average things, or we just see them as a less abled section of society. And we don't care about their access and their inclusion. And so it's kind of almost reframing what does somebody with a visible difference look like? What are they capable of? And actually pretty much anything that any, anybody else is, and they still have the same desires and wants, same sense of humor. Um, and people just see it as so separate and so different. Inspiration porn. I've never heard of that saying before, but it's really, really clever. I really like that. Do you know what, Doily? Uh, interesting listening to Katie say that because so many people, when I'm not there usually, say to my husband, you must have a heart of gold. And you know what? He, yeah. does, he does. He does have a heart of gold. And I love him dearly. And he loves me yeah. dearly. But he doesn't love me or feel sympathy for me or married me because of my HIV status. And so many people think that it's a good thing to mm -hmm. say to him, ah, oh, you know what? You are a diamond. You are one mm -hmm. of the world's nicest guys. And Steve's like... Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks a lot. But kind of why are you saying this? Because I've never met you before and we've never really um, interacted. So I don't know. Because you married Gareth. Yeah, you've taken on this burden that nobody else would want. Yeah. You know, it, and it and it's just it's really damaging. I mean, people often say to me when they meet me, I just love how you dress up still. I love how you wear makeup. And I'm just like, why would I not be interested in wearing fucking makeup? Like, <laughs> why would I not be interested in fashion? You know, it's such a narrow-minded view. Yeah, because you don't fit into you don't fit into their image of the victim. Yeah, and it's it's people kind can't of deal with that. They can't deal with that. It's really confusing for people. I mean, even in the legal system, I had my lawyers advised me I had to be really careful in my legal case of presenting as too recovered and too glamorous because that would go against me in a rape trial in an acid attack trial so uh, would you mind and we only have to briefly do it in case people don't know your story uh, and I, can we go back to 2008 briefly and just remind everyone in which ever way you want to uh, what actually happened to you so i was 24 years old and i had sort of met a guy and was really briefly dating him and sort of as you do when you date people handful of dates and decided that he wasn't for me and he took that rejection quite badly and he attacked me and raped me and beat me up. And, you know, I sustained quite bad injuries, head injuries. Ironically, I remember getting away from that thinking, so glad I'm alive. And then literally 24 hours later, he arranged for a stranger to throw sulfuric acid into my face. Broad daylight, five o'clock rush hour on a busy street in, um, in North London. So obviously that left me with quite life-changing 
um, injuries. I was left blinded in both eyes at first. Now I have sight in my right eye, but not in my left. I swallowed acid. So I had a lot of surgery in my esophagus and my stomach. I was tube fed for two years. Um, and I have a lot of problems like my respiratory system, my whole face, my nose, everything was melted and had to be rebuilt. So it's kind of been like 13 years of physical and psychological recovery. I mean, I'm really lucky in this country. I survived, I had NHS treatment. In other countries, I wouldn't have survived those injuries. Do you remember, or have you had that point? I'm guessing the way your life is now that you have had that point where you looked in the mirror and you went, hey, Katie, how are you? I like, I like this person. This is good. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, do you know what? It's a really interesting um, discussion around identity and who are we? And, you know, actually, I think, I don't know if you found this, Gareth, but you go through this thing of connecting with the inner you and all these other labels that society say change you or these statuses or what we acquire makes us more valuable or less valuable. It's all bullshit, hmm. you know, and essentially the person within never really changes. And that's why long, happy marriages, people stay attracted to each other as we evolve and we change. And I've never changed. I found out more about myself and my characteristics have strengthened. Um, but the way people have treated me has changed. And even now, like, you know, 2021, I look very different. I've had a lot of surgery. I look more socially acceptable now. And when I looked less socially acceptable, people treated me differently. So it's it's a good way to find out the genuine people in your life, I suppose. Yeah, because I, I, know, I know for me is exactly as you said there, Katie, like what runs through me, the narrative that runs through me is the exact same narrative, the exact same definition. I've evolved, yes, definitely. But the same, the, the same kind of, like there you are, I've, I've known Doily most of my life and everything I've been through, I like I haven't really changed. Like I've been confronted by things and, and I've been afraid of things and I've overcome things. But really, the person who sits here today is still the person who, you know, sat at a table 30 years ago. Um, it's just it's just so many stories happen and so many things are created outside that people make this impression um, of you. Um, but I'm still the same person, still exactly the same person. I think you've changed, actually. I think you've become a better version of yourself, actually. Well, I think well, that's, you're more, that's you're good. more comfortable. You're, you know, you, yeah, it is good. You're more comfortable with yourself. And, yeah. Um, it's uh, what you see is what you get with Alfie. That's for sure. <laughs> that's why we, well, that's why we love you. But it, it has, it has changed you because you're, you're able to be honest with yourself. I'm wondering how it's changed you, Katie, as a person. I think the same because ultimately, you know, what's the point in me pretending to be something I'm not? What's the point in me photoshopping and editing my photos online? Like I am who I am and it's permanent and it won't change. And I don't know, maybe it might be similar with you. There's a sense of liberation and freedom. And it's it, like I said about it being an idiot filter. You know, it's so apparent that people that aren't okay with it won't stick around in the first instant anyway. Um, so to really all anyone ever strives to is to be themselves, to be authentically them mm. and show up. So if you can do this at, the, at such a young age, like most people get to their like 60s or 70s and become authentically them. And, you know, that like, why start living when you're when you're starting to die? What's the point in that? Mm. So there is this amazing sort of sense of freedom that is attached to that, I think. Um you said something in one of your podcasts I, I thought was really interesting, and it's it's about how crisis and um, 
testing times change us and change our pathway. And you said you were never destined for success by way of your upbringing and how what happened to you has changed all that. Talk to me about that. I think it's really interesting. Did you know I'm part Welsh? <gasps> the best part? <laughs> Neath. South really? Wales, Neath. Yeah, yeah. So, like, my dad's family are all, all live in Neath. My dad's half Welsh. So, I guess I'm quarter. So, that's enough. Really, that's yeah. enough. That's okay. enough for us. That's enough and for I know Borada. Oh, Borada. Tinyo. Cariad. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. So I came from like a really normal family. We weren't wealthy. Um, my mum and dad were really hardworking. My dad was a barber in the village. My mum was a school teacher in the village, but she sort of juggled a career with being a, a parent as well. So she kind of did childminding and, and mothering at home as well as her career. So we always had to work hard. We always we didn't just get pocket money. We had to do stuff to get money. And I think I was an ambitious person, but what happened to me pushed me because I don't know if you feel the same, but when society puts you in a box or something, and I know you've done like the Iron Man, so I feel like you are this person where you almost have to go above and beyond to, to show people. And it it made me more determined. It made me more ambitious. It made me more active. And I think that's a good thing. Like I feel so resilient that honestly, if whatever happens to me in life, I know I can do it. And I know I, know I can do it alone. And whoever comes in and out of my life or whoever lets me down is okay because I feel in my core so robust and so stable. I can't ever really be insecure. And of course, there's that momentary insecurity of, you know, not being enough, not being like her or like him. But but deep down, I feel like I've got that structure, structure to survive anything, really. Yeah, I, I think... It's- Again, the synergy of like, um, I think when I have an op- when I have an opportunity to do something or to say something, um, I really take that opportunity. Um, and very similar upbringing, um, like really hard. I I I appreciated when I was brought up. I appreciated everything I had because I realised the sacrifices that had gone in by my parents to give me that opportunity and you know people people sometimes don't understand like when they say to my mother and father they say well you know didn't you know that your son was gay or how can you see over the last couple of years that your son um was struggling with this problem of living with hiv and my my mother my mother's answers are well we've got two other sons you know as well that we mm. look after. There's there's two other boys in our life that we also look um, have to look after. So I appreciated what they did, they did for all of us, and I think through that appreciation of the sacrifices made to give us the opportunities, it meant that when we had the opportunity, then we appreciated that moment, and we were going to do our damnedest to make sure that that moment, whether we failed or whether we succeeded, we tried our best at doing it. And I carried that in certainly into my rugby career. As much as I wanted to play rugby, um, I also wanted to repay the sacrifices that had been made for me to give that opportunity. And like you say, and Katie, when I did when I did the Ironman, it was like, okay, I I, I have an opportunity here that's bigger than me. It's bigger than my story around HIV. There's this stigma. There's this misunderstanding. There's this myth that living with HIV limits your capabilities and i know Mm -hmm. for a fact that that isn't true so what opportunity i remember being like what opportunity do i have or what action could i do 
that will give me that moment to be able to excel myself and challenge myself, but also challenge other people to excel their their thoughts. And it all goes, let's just exactly as Katie said, it all goes back to when she said earlier about, you know, how we really haven't changed. We've just had bigger opportunities. We've had bigger moments on bigger platforms. Um, yet, ultimately, we're just doing what is inherently kind of adopted into me. And that's somebody who who um, who takes opportunities because he appreciates the opportunities that he has. I thought it was because you just wanted to run around Tembi in a tight like suit. <laughs> well, that as well, but- obviously. <laughs> Been there. What a hey, that's liberating. I can tell you that. Um, can I talk to you both about self-sabotage? Katie, this is something you bring up quite a lot. Self-sabotage. What is it? How did it affect you? Yeah, I think I'm guilty of it. Um, and there's sort of there's two kind of things to it. There's there's self-sabotaging things because of low self-worth and thinking, you know, you're not you're not gonna do this, you're not gonna make a success of it. Um you know, I struggled in my recovery. I had a problematic relationship with alcohol. Um, and I think it was alcohol to mask anger, alcohol for false confidence. And um, I find it hard to, to get a boyfriend. I would always get rejected or used. And then when things were going well, I would self-sabotage and try and push people away before they pushed me away. And I kind of nearly didn't end up with my husband because... I was such an angry drunk and like such a nightmare. And he kind of said to me one day, the next day, I really like you, but you're a different person when you're drunk and you're so angry and you're punishing me for a time in your life when I didn't know you. And I really need you to help get help. You know, I want, I want to help you. And actually that really opened my eyes. And I actually did go um, to uh, a rehab for that. Um, and he stuck by me and we've been together like nine years now. Um, so that was a real lesson in self-sabotaging. But as well as self-sabotaging, there's like this British thing of self-deprecating where you know people might make jokes about you or might think you're less than and you go in there first and you make jokes about yourself to break the ice or you belittle yourself and be the funny one so that people feel like it's okay to say certain things around you. And both of them really are sort of doing yourself a disservice. And I think it's only with confidence and and higher self-esteem that you stop doing both mm, I, wow. I i i always i remember there's like um, in that. there's there's a saying that someone said to me that that comedians always do and um I, exactly what katie said there and why i probably don't agree with it is comedians if they if it's a black comedian if it's an overweight comedian if it's a gay comedian whatever Whatever they do, the first thing they do is address the elephant in the room. So they address themselves. So they consider themselves to be the the elephant. And once they've addressed it, once they've had a laugh over it, then people feel like they can get on. And it's kind of, I, I, my my question to them was always be like, well, why couldn't they get it on anyway? Why do you feel you have to address this protected characteristic? Because otherwise it's just going to stay in the room. Like, why is it just going to stay in the room and and picking up on some of the stuff that that Katie said there, you know, what I realized was that like my anger towards myself, um, especially around my sexuality um, and my my self-destructiveness towards myself. And I felt I was going through a phase in my life where, you know, I didn't care about what happened to me. Like I genuinely didn't care. 
I didn't feel like I wanted to live and living through the, the HIV process. There was times where I, I didn't want to live. And what happens is, as Katie said, her, her boyfriend at the time then said to her, is when people care about you, when people love you, if you don't love yourself, what happens is you see this hurt that you're trying to inflict on yourself affects other people. So my my now husband or my family see somebody who's destructive and then they go to bed crying at night because they wonder why you've turned into this person who doesn't care. Um, or they question, do you, lo- do you still love them because you don't have any love for yourself so you're not showing any 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 self-worth so it kind of it, it affects it affects your environment around you and I don't know I don't know about Katie not so much now but for me as well because I lived so much of my life right um stressing and worrying what other people are thinking or what I'm gonna do I get to I got to a point in my life and sometimes I still do where if I go to bed at night without the worry I think to myself hang on now I got nothing to worry about. Like, I need to start worrying about something because this ain't Find normal. Something. <laughs> yeah, this ain't normal. You know, does that ever happen with you? Can you think, okay, I need to find some. I need to find a problem so I can be okay because I got to worry then. Yeah, well, it's, it's like you're used to being in such a state of anxiety and, and, and you're used to catastrophizing that almost to be free kind of feels alien, mm. um, which is, is, is almost quite a sad thing to say, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but I do think, you know, going back to that thing of like once you're on a platform and once you're open you know everything feels so much easier because all of those all of that anger all of that heat inside that just kind of disseminates and life is so much better so I think anybody that is listening who is is hiding away for whatever reason about anything you know it is painful to come out about all these different things and you will lose some people and you will have some negative reactions but the freedom and and the positive really really outweighs the the negative mm. it's it, it's funny I'm, I'm gonna go back to lycra for a moment if you, <laughs> you can't get away from it i love it these links <laughs> no but i love it i mean i just i love the feeling of it on my body i, love <laughs> I did a um many years ago i'm in the bt tower today i'm not if you're watching this i'm not in the waiting room for for some kind of colonic irrigation it is it is <laughs> And um, I was in here many years ago giving a talk and they put up some slides of all the speakers and they put up a slide of me finishing a triathlon. Uh, it was in Hamburg and it was the world, world championships for the obviously the non-elite athletes, the age group athletes. And I was with some athletes there and, and rugby players and I was embarrassed that I was on with that. I, I said, no, no, I can't. And I pointed out that in the last couple of Ks of the run, I need to go to the toilet so badly. Alfie, you'll know this. You sometimes just got to pee yourself. And I, and I pointed out, oh, well, if you notice, actually, in my photograph of us across the line with my arms up, there's a wet patch around there, you know. And I, I tried to make a joke of it. And one of the, one of the, the for, a former British and Irish line came up to me after and says, why did, you, why did you pinpoint that? I said, it's funny. He goes, it's okay to be proud of something you did. I said, yeah, but I came 96th. Because it doesn't matter. You went and you did it. Mm. And your achievements are different to someone else's achievements and you can't compare them to the person beside you because we all have our different zones and our different base levels and our different, you know, reaching out of our comfort zones. And, and this thing we do when we compare ourselves to other people, I know I'm going on, but it's such, it's such, um, such a weight to bear comparisons with other people, isn't it? I learned a huge lesson that day that if it's good for you, you should celebrate it. Uh. 
monologue over. Yeah, no, that's but... really powerful. Sorry, Katie. I thought it was interesting. I thought it was an interesting thing. <laughs> yeah, no, man. Yeah, I... no, you. Oh. <laughs> You go, go on. Um, yeah, no, but that, that, right, is, that's kind of really the culture sometimes that we surround ourselves by or we expect other people to think, you know what, if, if I haven't won this, then I shouldn't be able to talk about it, even though to me, it was it was a huge success. And you know what, I, like talking about um, your achievements there, that, I th- for me, that was the beauty about doing something like an Ironman, okay, where... You have 50 elite runners and there's two and a half thousand amateurs, right? And everybody is so appreciative of everybody else. Like there are people who are in there who are kind of competing. And you think, why are you, why, what is the point of competing? Because it's this, it's this, um, it's this event that to get to the start line, everybody feels is a success in itself. So anything else that happens is, do you know what? It's just by the by. And I think some, you know, I don't want to compare an Iron Man to life, but it's a really cool analogy of being like, you know what? We're all in this kind of life together and we've all got to the start line. We've all got to where we are now by facing challenges, by overcoming our own personal vulnerabilities, whatever that vulnerability maybe whether you know it's a visual vulnerability whether it's a hidden vulnerability whatever but supporting each other to get to the end is you know it's kind of a really cool analogy that i use from learning that iron man to having in life and the fact that you know i don't want to be i don't want to get to the end thinking yes i've done everything that i possibly could do and screw everyone else because I'd be happy when I get it, thinking, do you know what, like at certain times in the Ironman, people fall off their bikes, you stop, you lose a couple of seconds, but you pick some, but you're not in there for the race. You feel good about yourself by helping people get to the finish line, you know? Mm-hmm. It, it's such a thief of joy, that comparison, because you'll never, ever arrive. You know, you'll never be where you think you should be. You'll never be like that comparison. And it it will take all your energy and your mind off excelling in your own race of life you know there only ever is one race that you're running and if you think about like my kids right they're really young age three age seven they think we're all the same they wear the same school uniform they're all at similar levels in education it's only when they get to sort of secondary school differences will be apparent through puberty through different levels of education and then as we get older we think it's our differences that hold us back or make us less than but when you go public like me and you have about something different you will attract people who say I'm different like you mm. and I support you and even though I don't have this or that I have that and I get want to get behind you and our differences bring us together again so like with my story surprisingly a large amount of people who write to me and contact me are either those um, who are transitioning men or women because they relate to this kind of thing of being trapped in a body with an exterior that doesn't represent you but it they also they att- attach shame to it I have three people in my life that have told me they're HIV positive. Two of them are not out with that status. I don't think they would have told me if I hadn't had my story attached to me because they, you know, they assume that I'll have that empathy and you just find your differences when you own them and you say, this is who I am and I'm proud start to bring you together. And it's as adults, it's what we think sets us apart. I'm Mm. different. 
I won't be accepted. I'm not like them. I'm not in the popular circle of the mums at school, but we're mm. wrong. And we don't want people to judge us, but we're judging other people. We're making up our mind. We won't be accepted. We'll be feared. We'll be left out. We'll be seen as what a threat or whatever it is. And, you know, it works two ways. It's a two-way street, that judgment. Yeah. I also, so, sorry about so wise, Gareth. Yeah, so but I, I, it is. But I also, <laughs> I also find as well, when you have... You know, and I've always said it about conversations. When you have conversations with people, so often, before I spoke about my sexuality, before I spoke about my HIV status, like I'd sit down on a table with people and we'd have these like lifeless, soulless conversations about, I don't know, what car someone drives, what money they have in the bank, where they live, what furnitures they have, what clothes they wear, what labels they... And you just think to yourself, or I think now when I look back at them, is what they are such false conversations. And I think when you show a vulnerability or when you're honest to people about um, your difference, that, you know, sometimes sitting on a table, everybody's everybody's fighting to be different, but different in, in a, you know, in a, in a real materialistic way. But when somebody mm. talks about their personal difference, um, all of a sudden, to me, that's somebody who I'd rather engage in a conversation with. That's somebody who I would rather say, do you know what? Right, you know, let's go and have a coffee together or let's hang out together because I'm more interested in their vulnerabilities because vulnerabilities, they make you human. You know, they, they, mm-hmm. they're they the biggest sign of humanity that we have, yet people defend that sign of humanity for a sense of brashness, you know, for a sense of material possessions. Um, so, yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think having them conversations and the ability to have them conversations they're the way of make connecting more with people. And, and that's what this podcast is all about, Katie. It's about having these conversations that sometimes are uncomfortable. Um, and hopefully the people that listen to them will spread the word and make a change. Because Alfie, as you are saying at the start of this, you know, of all the work you're doing, there's still a, little, a lot of misconceptions out there, a, little, a lot of misinformation. So for those of listening today, both of you, what can they do to help bring change? Hmm. Well, that's a big question. Um, You know, often on social media, we're pressuring people to sign petitions, donate money. But actually, it's what you do in your everyday life offline and how you um, conduct yourself, how you treat people, how you raise those around you and influence them. That has an even larger impact than just donating money or or signing a government petition. Um, You can go to my charity's website, which is caseypiperfoundation.org.uk. There's loads of resources. There's loads of information about living with uh, disfigurement, life after a traumatic accident or an attack. And there's many ways you can fundraise, connect with people. Um, You can also follow me on Instagram. I'm at katiepiper underscore. I talk about lots of different subjects, not just burns and scars, different things that I'm passionate about. Um, and also come to my, my platform, my podcast, Katie Piper's Extraordinary People, for people that are far more interesting than me. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I think you're fascinating to listen to. And you have so much empathy and understanding. You're very wise, wise well before your years, I have to say. Um, Alfie, uh, what are we saying to them out there? I think it's kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can filter the message of what Katie just said because it's the relevant message. And that's, I feel, having the knowledge or having the information which gives you the power um, to create change on conversations that you might have been a part of and just joined in because you didn't have the information, you didn't have the knowledge to to 
correct people. Um, and I think to do that, I believe, you know, you need to follow and engage with people who are giving you this information, but also are giving you real life stories, you know, lived experiences rather from, you know, me, me saying to people, you know, are you work in this building? I've never been in this building. I've never sat in your chair, but this is how you should live your life. That's quite patronizing, I think, is to have that lived experience from people and then lived experiences transcend my life, transcend Katie's life. And people are able to, to kind of connect with them in that way. So for me, again, We've got tacklehiv.org, which is which is a site that gives you relevant information um, around living with HIV and more importantly, living with HIV in 2021. We on uh, Instagram at, at tackle um, HIV as well, and I think it's just to follow follow these sites, get this relevant information at relevant times, and and use it to become a better version of you. 